Welcome to the Positive Turbulence Podcast, Stories from the Periphery. Here we journey to the edge to talk to turbulators about their experiences creating positive change. Hi, I'm Rob Brodnick. And I'm Karen Zadinga. In sharing these stories, these perspectives on innovation, creativity, change, and leadership, we hope to generate some positive turbulence for you. Consider for a moment the importance of trust. Trust plays out in public ways, like in the growing political divide, racism, and the environment. It also plays out in personal ways, like your relationships, your work, how you get along in your community. Trust is critical to effective leadership, flowing creativity, change management, and innovation. Yet few of us spend much time thinking about it. We take a passive and binary approach. It's there or not there. When it's there, things just work and we kind of take it for granted that it will always be there. When trust's not there or we experience betrayal, things fall apart and we throw up our hands and we say there was never trust there to begin with. I'm really excited to introduce you to Daryl Stickle, founder of Trust Unlimited, who has cracked the code on how to build and maintain trust. He's the rare academic who not only has a big breakthrough in his field, but also has developed a highly practical model. He's applied this model in war zones, in business settings, and with families, all with great success. I don't know exactly what picture that paints in your head, but I'm pretty sure you're not thinking about someone who is legally blind, named his dog Drake because he's a philosopher who can't sing, and grew up in a small northern town in British Columbia. Daryl offers us the gift of how to better build and nurture trust. Our conversation with him dives into how vulnerability, uncertainty, and context play into creating or inhibiting trust. And he offers more than just a few solid insights along the way. I'm sure that even for those among you who are trust and vulnerability experts, there are one or two eye-openers here. There is even a hot tip for those of you looking to build trust in your personal relationships. But before we begin, let's take a moment to acknowledge our supporting organizations. Positive Turbulence Podcast is brought to you by AMI, an innovation learning community that is celebrating 40 years of supporting innovation and creativity for organizations and individuals. Learn more at aminnovation.org. Also, we'd like to thank Mac Avenue Music Group as a contributing sponsor. To hear our theme song, Late Night Sunrise, and other great music, visit macavenue.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am so excited to be talking to you today, Daryl. When we spoke, I guess it was a couple months ago, maybe, I was immediately impressed and intrigued and curious and wanted to dive in. And then I had to stop myself and say, wait until we get Rob here (laughs) and we can just let go and really dive in and explore trust. So if you wouldn't mind, Daryl, would you just give Rob and I a bit of an overview of how we wind up talking to you about trust? I was born and raised in a small northern community here in Canada, and there was a sense of community where people helped one another out. Through that and a series of challenging life experiences, I developed a fairly high level of empathy and understanding for others' compassion. I came to university at the University of Victoria. I'd find myself sitting on the bus and and somebody would just sit down next to me and say, I'm really having a hard day. This started to happen fairly often. And I thought, this is going to happen all the time. Maybe I should get paid for this. So I started down the path towards becoming a clinical psychologist. I worked with families in crisis and troubled teens and street kids and all kinds of different groups. I worked on crisis lines. And so I continued to try to hone those skills. And then after a while, I came to realize that a lot of the people I was working with, they had limited resources. They were really just doing the best they could. And the fact that you could get 
there and see the problem and, and diagnose it and, and give them a path forward, but they just couldn't implement. And I thought, I'll go crazy if I do this for the rest of my life. And so I switched and went into public administration, ended up working in native land claims in British Columbia. They would ask me deep philosophical questions. What is self-government? Or what will the province look like 50 years after claims are settled? And the last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over 100 years they should trust us? And I thought, wow, what a good question. My initial response was maybe it would help if we were trustworthy. And that, that didn't get nearly the positive response one would hope for. <laughs> um, and so I went to Duke and wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments. Our lives make sense in retrospect, but it feels sort of like there was a path all the way along that led me to that question. I started looking at the existing trust literature and the research and started to try to understand how people made the trust decision. And through years of research and work, I developed a model that talked about how people made the decision itself. A lot of the work on trust treats trust like a black box. Something happens and then trust magically pops out the other side. Right, yeah. I was trying to get a better sense of what goes on inside that box. I was fortunate to have a couple of leading academics on the topic of trust on my thesis committee. They sat me down after I finished and they said, okay, so when you first came to us, we said it's too big. He'll never solve it. We'll let him bang his head against it for six months and then we'll let him slice off a little piece and that'll be his thesis. And they said, six months in, you were so far beyond us, we couldn't help anymore. All we could do is sit and watch. Now here we are two years later, we think you've solved it. I ended up going to McKinsey and Company, working as a consultant. They identified me as having really good client hands, and so I would get sent to difficult places. Again, it was a chance to hone those skills and practice. And then I was involved in a car accident in 2001, ended up with post-concussion syndrome, which meant I just couldn't work those kinds of hours anymore. I ended up starting a small company called Trust Unlimited. One of my former colleagues came to me and said, look, just come talk to us. He was working as head of strategy for a mutual fund company. And they brought me in to talk to them about sustainable competitive advantage and strategy. I said, sustainable competitive advantage means you do something that others can't copy. You do something better than they do and they can't copy it. And there's nothing you do I can't copy. I could buy one share of every fund you have and now I know how they're all built and I don't have to pay the fund advisors so I can sell what you sell at a discount. I said, the only thing you can do is build deep long-term relationships with your customers. And they said, that's it. That's our strategy. And so I spent 18 months training everybody, took my thesis, turned it into a workshop. And after 18 months, they hired a professional survey firm and found out that trust was the primary driver of the sales decision and that they were dramatically more trusted than any of their competitors. And they generated 75 cents of every new dollar that came into that industry for the next two years. They were part of a global financial services organization, and that organization started sending teams from all over the world to figure out what are these guys doing because they were dominating. From that, I knew that the model's not perfect, but it works. So I spent the next 20 years helping individuals and organizations better understand what trust is, how it works, and more importantly, how to build it. Wow, that's quite a story. What a starter. That's only the first answer, Karen. We're just, <laughs> we're gonna just warming up. Yes. <laughs> I just can't imagine, finish your thesis, your doctoral defense, and your committee says to you, we think you cracked it. It's one in a million that students who even get a chance to aspire to that, and here you got the feedback that you did. I'm really curious, what were some of the signs that out of your work, 
that this committee of experts saw and thought, wow, here's what's new. Here's what's novel. We think this problem has been solved now where it hasn't been solved before. What were some of the nuggets from that? That's a good way to frame the question, Rob, because when I looked at the existing research, I came to realize that all of the work was answering the same question. And when we decide to trust somebody, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. The first is how likely am I to be harmed, which is perceived uncertainty. And the second question is, if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt, which is perceived vulnerability. And after I'd been looking through the research for a while, I had this epiphany where I said, they're all talking about uncertainty. All of this work is talking about answering that first question. Once I'd framed it in terms of uncertainty, I could also ask myself, well, where else does uncertainty come from? Most of the research is talking about trust from a personal level. What are the things that I do that make you trust me or not trust me? One of the pieces that was missing was the context because we sometimes trust people without knowing anything about them. We go to a restaurant, we get in a cab, we get on an airplane, we go see the doctor. And sometimes, like in your experience, people sit down next to you and they just start sharing. Yeah. I like to use the doctor's office as an example. You go to the doctor's office, somebody walks in, pulling on some latex gloves and has a white coat, a stethoscope, and says, take off your clothes. And you do, right? That doesn't happen in other places. <laughs> Change the setting to the bathroom at a gas station, and all of a sudden it goes from credible to creepy, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it can be the same people. And so without understanding context, we really couldn't explain why we trust some people without knowing them or why we trust people in some settings, but not other settings. Understanding context was one of the things that really helped me when I was asked by the Canadian military to try to help them figure out how to build trust with the locals in Afghanistan. Because one soldier with a machine gun tends to look a lot like another. Mm -hmm. Those individual characteristics don't carry as much weight. We started to learn that the formal mechanisms of social control, I divide context into formal and informal mechanisms of social control. We rely really heavily on those in North America, but none of that plays in Afghanistan. It's all the informal. It's who your friends are, who you're related to, what religion you belong to, what village you're from. It's all that informal stuff. Context ended up being a big piece of the addition that I made to the literature. Vulnerability was the other one. Overwhelmingly, the research treats trust like a dichotomous variable, like it's either present or absent, like an old-time light switch. Adding vulnerability allows us to talk about depth of relationship. I'm willing to be more vulnerable with somebody that I'm closer to. I think about these as the basis for trust, uncertainty and vulnerability. It's uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. We each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. So if we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. If we're beneath it, then we do. Building trust becomes really simple. How do we reduce uncertainty? How do we reduce perceptions of vulnerability so that people are more comfortable? And we can also talk about profiles of relationships where in settings where uncertainty is high, then vulnerability has to be low for us to trust. And where uncertainty starts to squish and gets smaller, then the range of vulnerability we can accept gets bigger. That's inside that black box that I talked about before. We're talking about these levers of uncertainty and vulnerability. And this is how I help people understand how to build trust is by deconstructing those things, giving them a sense of which levers to pull and how to pull them. The next piece that I added was perceived outcomes. We interpret the world through stories. We can have exactly the same experience and have dramatically different perceptions of what just happened. We need to be cautious and conscious of the fact that we should be defining outcomes beforehand. We should be creating a shared narrative afterwards so that the next iteration we have has a higher trust level within it. In the middle of all this are our emotional states, whether we like or dislike somebody else. And this was the piece where we're talking about hostility. Because when we like someone, 
we tend to look for reasons to trust them. And we tend to find those reasons we're more likely to trust them and we're more likely to see the outcomes as positive. And that makes us like them even more. So this is how we start these virtuous cycles. When we dislike someone, we look for reasons not to trust them. We're less likely to trust them. We're more likely to see outcomes as negative, which creates these vicious cycles. The more extreme our feelings become, the less rational we are. All of the existing trust literature is focused on these cognitive rational components, which are virtually useless in hostile environments where people are really angry and hate one another. That was what prompted them to say, yeah, we think you've solved it. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. As you explain that, it doesn't only provide a theoretical perspective, but the way I see it, it provides a set of tools where you can actually do something. And not always does academic research or literature produce that do something with it result, which I like. It's it's often just explain this. We need a new theory because our understanding of it is not fully clear. But I, I love your simple strong methodology. I have a thousand questions, but I'm going to let Karen right. next. <laughs> it's going to be a thing. <laughs> We're both going to be, oh my God, there's so many questions. <laughs> yeah, what's really appealing to me is this kind of equation you've developed, thinking about the, the variables and those levers. I'm less of an academic than Rob. I know we're okay. all shocked. All our listeners are just going, what? But I would love to sort of get a sense, maybe an example or a sort of a, a way for our listeners to interpret it a little, maybe a little bit more personally in their own maybe work situations or relationship situations or just community situations. The interesting thing is I've applied this all over the place. Nonprofits, public sector, private sector, families. I work with families often. I'll give you an example of a couple of applications that I made. On the uncertainty side, we think about levers. And I believe that we all have the ability to build trust. Some are are better than others. And those who aren't very good pull a lever. They pull it over and over again. And they just hope that the problem lines up against that. Those who are better have multiple levers and they try them out. Those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. What I try to do is give people more tools in their toolbox and give them a start towards helping to diagnose some of these problems. Often with my students, I'll sit down and I'll say, think of a relationship. And on the uncertainty side, uncertainty comes from us as individuals and from the setting we're embedded in, the context. From the individual side, there's some really well-known research amongst academics. And most people who've read anything about trust will, will recognize the terms or the subsets that were created. In 1995, a guy named Roger Mayer who's a friend of mine, wrote one of the seminal articles with a couple of his colleagues on trust. And in it, they proposed that there were three elements that drove perceptions of trustworthiness. And those were benevolence, integrity, and ability. Benevolence is the belief you have my best interest at heart and that you'll act on my best interest, even if it's not in your own short-term best interest. Integrity is I will follow through on my promises and my actions align with the values that I express. Ability is do I actually have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? And that tends to be our favorite lever. I've got this much experience, these many credentials, this kind of position in the organization, this many happy customers. One of the examples I have is one of my students, we were talking about benevolence and I said, I want you to think about a relationship that you want to work on. And he said, okay, my girlfriend. I said, great. So what matters most to your girlfriend? We're going to try to show benevolence. And he said, her family. And I said, great. So tonight when you go home, 
you're going to have a conversation with your girlfriend and you're going to say, well, today my instructor was talking to me and he asked me to think about a relationship that really mattered to me. And I thought about you. So that's our first step in showing benevolence, that we're giving consideration to the other person. And then you're going to say to her, when he asked me what mattered most to you, I said, family, is that right? And so now you're inviting her to be part of the conversation, to give you the chance to be wrong. And when she says, yeah, my family is really important to me, you're going to say, so then I thought that me getting along well with your family would be really important to you. And so I'm going to start having conversations with your family, going for lunches with them, sharing information with them. I'm going to work actively to build my relationship with your family because it's so important to you. This is the way that we show benevolence. So the next day he comes back and he goes, wow, did that ever work well? I've been given the go ahead to talk to you as often as I want. And so we, we have these sort of mechanisms. A lot of times when I talk to, to parents, I'll say, how many of you have your kid's best interest at heart? And all the hands go up. And I say, how many of your kids say that? And it's about a third, somewhat hesitantly. And it's often because we haven't included the other person in the conversation. As a parent, we're thinking about today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, 10 years down the road. We want them to engage in behaviors that are going to be good for them 10 years from now. And we don't hold ourselves to that standard. They're thinking about right now. To earn the right to talk about tomorrow, we have to help them be successful today. These are ways that I try to help folks understand how to show benevolence. And if it's not transparent in a place like family where it's supposed to be, how hard is it for a leader to show benevolence or us in everyday life to show benevolence towards others? In part, it's about thinking about others and then including them in the conversation. I have similar conversations around ability. It's our favorite lever to pull, but we tend to massively underdefine what excellence is. The mutual fund company I was working with, they had senior executives, middle managers, and frontline staff all in the same room. And I said, if I break you into those three groups, would you have the same definition for what an excellent middle manager is. They said, we wouldn't have the same definition within those three groups. If we don't understand what excellence is, then how do we identify it? How do we reward for it? How do we recruit for it, train for it, develop it? A lot of times we identify or define excellence based on outcomes that are sometimes outside of people's control. You guys like to talk about innovation. What we should be rewarding is the right process, believing that it'll come to innovative outcomes rather than rewarding the ones who have that eureka that's actually successful. Often to get to excellence, it means we need to surface what it really means. For me, when I'm lecturing, I'll talk to people about what excellence looks like as a professor. And I have my perspective, but I'll also ask the students for their perspective. I talk to my bosses about their perspective and I get this list that I try to create a shared understanding of what excellence is going to be so that I can then communicate it and try to live up to it. Does that help, Karen? Yeah. <laughs> Rob and I are both seriously nodding, like heavy nodding, when you're talking about rewarding process, when we're talking about innovation rather than outcomes, which will make a lot of people, particularly uh, people in the startup community that I know, their hair was now on fire. They're shouting at whatever device they're using to listen to this on because for them, it's completely the opposite. Most entrepreneurs I know can't even, they can't even say the word process without getting like hives. They hate process. They love outcomes. I think as we have conversations around redefining success and what does all that mean? I think that this thing that you're into about defining excellence and rewarding process and knowing that if you've got the right process, the outcomes will follow. Right. It's simple, but radical. I had a CEO and his VP of sales in one of my training sessions. And I said, what is excellence for him, for the VP of sales? And they said, he hits his numbers. And I said, 
So what happens if something dramatic happens in the marketplace and all of a sudden you're just swamped with orders and a chimpanzee could have met the numbers? Or what happens if there's a, I don't know, something crazy like a pandemic and demand just goes away? And this guy is actually delivering better than anyone else could have in that situation. Do you fire him? Because he hasn't hit the numbers? Because those are things that are outside of his control. It launched a very earnest and interesting conversation around what are the things that we should be measuring to show that I'm actually doing my job well? We just don't seem to have those conversations very often. Yeah, or ever. Yeah. Well, at least in the communities I'm traveling around in, where everyone's talking about a number being the metric, right? A number, either a sales number or a margin number or, you know, a profit number, like just... It's always about a number or a metric. Oh, we had so many views. We were looking at a newsletter the other day. We had so many opens. <laughs> like, what does that mean? How does that relate to success, success? for the organization? Yeah. yeah. I had a great conversation with my son. My oldest son is very invested in baseball. One year he was on a team and he just, he said to me, dad, we're not going to be very good this year. Like we're not going to win a lot of games. And I said, maybe you need to define success around what you have control over. So what would a good year look like for you? And he said, I would get better. So skill development. I would learn about being a better teammate. And so I'd build strong relationships and I'd build a good relationship with the coaching staff so that they're happy to, to teach and, and coach me, but also happy to recommend me to others. I said, okay. And so by those metrics, he actually had a great season. And the team didn't win a lot of games, but we were able to just revisit it every once in a while and say, how are you progressing against what success looks like for you? Knowing that if everyone did their best to be successful in that way, the team would actually start to see results. The Positive Turbulence podcast is brought to you by AMI, a not-for-profit innovation learning community. Here's AMI members Snow, grad of the Pratt Institute and author and illustrator, talking about how trust was a key factor for getting her to come to her first AMI meeting and to opening up to new experiences. Two mentors, Denise and Mary, mm -hmm. they are long-term members of AMI. They thought that I can benefit from joining this group. Mm -hmm. And they also, before I come, they prepare me by saying that, oh, you'll love this group of people and they will like you. <laughs> uh, so it's because of trust. I know that I will meet like-minded people just like them, amazing mentors here. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how I got introduced here. AMI is proud to announce that we now also offer virtual meetings. We pack in all the goodness of the in-person meeting in a two-hour virtual convening. Find out more at aminnovation.org. There's some paradoxes in here that I find interesting. I really like your statement about the light switch, and it's either on or off. You either have it or you don't. And I think of those extreme conditions of trust. If you, you play free association with people, they would say a warm blanket or a good feeling. You can think of the list. Right. You've been in the business long enough to all the things like, what is trust? People have to describe it. And then the lack of it, right? You have this kind of anxious, chaotic. In the spirit of positive turbulence, I actually think trust is not a warm blanket. I see trust as permission to get real about some things and maybe start to turn the volume up. And when you have trust, things can start to get interesting because if you don't, you're just fighting for like a good day or status quo. But when you have this, you're in this sort of organizational flow state where people are trusting each other. I think that's the opportunity to really create something magical. And like I said, in the spirit of positive turbulence, what about trust 
is not the warm blanket, but the opportunity really to make it cool or interesting. I have to interrupt. I love that. Trust is permission to get real. And that is also what positive turbulence is. I just have to jump in and say that because yeah. I'm like, ooh, a little shiver down my spine on that one. Sorry. Sorry well, and no, you, you warned me, Karen, that Rob was going to have fantastic questions. So that's a great <laughs> question. I did. <laughs> we think about some of the big problems in the world, things like climate change, race relations, relationships with the police. We think about the growing divide in politics and animosity towards one another. These all require a collective collaborative response. They all require some level of underlying trust. And we need to actually be able to be honest and open with each other. One of the leaders I've been recently working with said, I really want my team to bring the ugly to the table. And I said, you're talking to the right guy because I've brought ugly to every table I've ever been at. It's that ability to be able to take risks. One of the things about innovation is that it comes with failure. If we actually want our organizations to innovate, then we have to have people comfortable that they can make mistakes, that they can fail. A lot of the organizations I'm working with, even high-tech organizations, the leadership group feels if I make one mistake, I'm done. They're terrified. And that means that they have to micromanage everyone else because if those other people make mistakes, then it reflects on the leader. The unusual thing about times of high uncertainty, like we're facing right now, or times of crisis, is that we become more aware of the importance of trust and the value of it goes up, but at the same time, the amount of it goes down. Does that answer the question, Rob, or did I just go on a tangent? No, it's good. I, I think it's good. I, I have eight more questions that, that <laughs> pop into my head. Here's the next one that comes to mind, maybe an extension of it. Trust being like a house of cards in that it takes so long to build and in an instant, you can make it all go away. When you, you see the first cards start to fall, what do you do to get it back? You are on fire today, Rob. That's a great question. Part of the thing is, is though, is when we get good at building trust, and, and it's a skill that we can all get better. As we get better at building trust, we're more able to identify where we missed, and people are more inclined to give us the benefit of the doubt. There's a resilience that we can create. I make mistakes often. I'm legally blind, and I've got post-concussion syndrome. Clearly, I'm not perfect. When I ask my sons, what does good look like from a father? What, what would excellence be? They're quite comforting, and we have these honest conversations about what good would look like. But I fall short. And because of the trust levels that we have, they're more willing to cut me slack or give me the opportunity to make amends. We get stuck, Rob, in this dichotomous thinking. And when I ask people who do you trust? I always get these close, tight personal relationships. We don't remember that we trust some people more than others, but it, it moves. Sometimes when people talk about that house of cards notion, they're thinking about a catastrophic failure, cheating on a spouse or betraying someone. And often it's more like a death of a thousand cuts where we disappoint mm -hmm. somebody over and over again. How do we rebuild trust when it's gone? In part, we need to understand how we've fallen short and what the story is for the other person. And to be able to go back and say, here's my story. Here's why I did what I did. And here's my empathy and understanding for how that hurt you. And here's an expression of remorse for that. And it, it may not be that it was causal, right? It may not be that it was my fault, but I still can feel remorse that it happened. And then a conversation around how do we take steps to, to try to reduce the probability that's going to happen again? When we're in higher trust environments, there's the opportunity for those conversations. And it's back to that notion of how do we bring the ugly to the table? How do we actually have those conversations before it festers, before it gets so bad that it's really hard to fix? 
And then we go back and revisit the model. We understand which levers do I need to pull? We've got 10 or 11 different levers. Which ones do I need to pull in this situation to try to make things right? Mm-hmm. You know, Daryl, as you were talking, I, I was thinking, first of all, yes and yes. <laughs> all of those things so resonate with me. Everything from the most profound personal level to the kind of the everyday transactional in the store level. It was just right. like that. All of those levels really resonate. One of the things I was thinking about when you were talking was the telling of your own story. And my experience about when trust failed in small instances and in really deep, nasty, big instances, is that my perception has been is that there was never really trust there to begin with. That's the story I begin with often. And maybe that's a little bit TMI. I don't know. But that's where I often begin telling the story about trust when trust failed was, well, there was never really any there anyway, and here I am. And I suspect I'm not alone. I suspect a lot of people respond to a failure in trust when they have felt betrayed in the same way. I can think of a work situation that I was in where it went sideways badly, and the story I'm telling myself was, oh, they never really trusted me anyway. Help me see it from that side, because you talked a lot about the betrayer, not that necessarily it was a bad betrayal, but the betrayer side, taking responsibility and saying, yeah, but can you talk about it from the other side? One of the challenges we face, and so I often talk to people about the workshops that I do, the intent is to close the gap between how much we should be trusted and how much we are, not to help them be more trusted than they should be. Mm -hmm. Because that's when we fail. That's when we fall down. You remember I was talking about those sort of virtuous cycles. One of the things that can happen to us sometimes is we'll be started on a virtuous cycle and then there's a betrayal that happens And we go back and we reevaluate all of those past experiences through a negative lens. And it corkscrews us to a negative cycle fairly quickly. Because we interpret the world through stories, it's very possible for us to have that narrative of this person never trusted me or I never really believed in them. I talk about this notion of locus of control. and, And a lot of the pieces of the model are backed up by theory from other places. It's more of an integrative model. But the notion of locus of control becomes really important. And internal locus of control means we're master of our own destiny and we make things happen in the world. An external locus of control means that we're buffeted by the winds of fate, that things happen to us. When I used to teach undergraduates at Duke, I would say to them, who here has an internal locus of control? And they're good little capitalists, so all the hands go up. And I said, this is fantastic. So if you don't do well in this class... It's not because it was too hard or I didn't teach it right or the test wasn't right. It's all you, baby. And they all went, oh, wait a minute. And I said, yeah, that's right. We have an internal locus of control when we're successful and an external locus of control when we fail. That's a defense mechanism for us. It keeps us psychologically well and capable of not curling up into a ball and still able to go out in the world. But if it's too strong, we don't learn. Mm -hmm. And so when things go wrong, We need to actually take a moment and reflect on what role did we play and how could we have changed our actions. When things go right, we need to look and say, what are the circumstances that led to that? What are the parts of the environment or the context that allowed me to be successful so that I can recognize those in the future? And a lot of times when things go wrong, we blame the rest of the world. And that's not unusual. So if I fail, then I'm more likely to blame the circumstance Mm -hmm. than to take accountability for myself. And I try to be very conscious of not doing that, particularly when it comes to my kids. I try to own the pieces that were under my control that I messed up on. I think you're right. We have this tendency to shift the narrative so it protects our sense of self. 
we shift the narrative to say there was never trust there anyways, because it reduces the amount of loss that we experience. And sometimes it makes sense for us to not be engaged in a relationship, to step away from it. Fair enough. But sometimes we panic and we flee things that might be good for us or for the group moving forward if we could just work through them. Does that answer your question? Yeah. No, beautifully. I love it. Yeah, I was thinking locus control, fascinating. The, right. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, if, if I don't do well, that also could be my thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my, my sons are involved in sports and their team has never lost a game where the ref didn't suck. Yeah. Yeah. That's always the case. <laughs> That's hard psychological work coming to those places and to accepting your own responsibility in when things went wrong and getting out of your own way, getting out of your own victim story. Short of, of spending a lot of quality time with a great therapist, how do you accept responsibility? How do you make that shift? What are the steps a person could take? Well, I think part of this is really trying to understand, being aware that our story isn't the only story that could be used to interpret how things just went. Mm-hmm. And then trying to understand the other person's perspective. And there's a bit of a Socratic method to this, right? A lot of questions. How did that land for you? I can imagine that your story might be trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes will then give us some hints about things we might have done differently. The thing to remember here is that none of us are perfect and expectations of that are, are unreasonable. We're all flawed beings on a journey together on this hurtling blue marble to try to get better and to be better each day. And Part of building trust is actually really trying to understand other folks and what their narrative is and what their perspective is. By adopting that, we can see what some of our own flaws might be, at least from other people's perspective. And sometimes it's a communication problem. It's a failure to communicate our intent. It's a failure to have a shared understanding of what a good outcome looked like or what the priorities were or how important this was to somebody else. And those are flaws we can fix. So I hear active engagement in my consciousness, the processes I'm involved in, hard work, observation of the process, continuing questioning, plus then a diagram on the wall of the trust formula, because you got to be reminded of those levers all the time. And you said they're there in front of you. You just have to be aware of that. So openness to the process, understanding the recipe It's not that simple, of course. Then what else? How do you take trust further? How do you turn it into a tool for you to help yourself and others in the best way possible? Partly what we're doing now is, you know, we're developing a 12-week program to help people walk through applying the model. Because you're right. When I show people the model, they go, of course, that's how it works. This is obvious, right? Like, you got a PhD for that? And when trust scholars see it, they go, oh my God, you're talking about things we don't talk about. But that sort of surface level understanding of seeing the model and, and, and getting it. The next step is how do I apply it? It's actively thinking about how do I show benevolence? How do I include people in conversations? How do I, on a daily basis, show somebody that I'm thinking about them and that I'm aware of them? And it doesn't mean always being nice. If I'm a leader and somebody says to me, I want to progress in my career, then that says to me, okay, so I should start evaluating you based on the next level. And I should start giving you feedback based on what the expectations are going to be at that next level. And I need to hold you more accountable because the expectations are about to go up. And as long as we're transparent, we have the same story about that, then we can be benevolent and it doesn't have to be nice, nice all the time. It's around the integrity piece. We often fall down on integrity. One, because we overpromise. We have a tendency to to overpromise. Some people have a hard time saying no. 
particularly when things go wrong, that'll never happen again, or, or we promise outcomes when we don't have absolute control over those outcomes. Mm-hmm. And instead, we should be promising effort or actions that we'll take. We can have a set of values. If they're not clear to everyone, then it's questionable about whether we can demonstrate integrity. I try to talk to people about telling your story and being consistent around, here's how this lines up with my values. Here's how this decision aligns with the values that the organization expresses. Because so many times we go into organizations and they've got the value statement on the wall and it's just wall art. There isn't an ongoing conversation about how our actions are lining up with that, how we're expressing that to our customers, how they're experiencing it. And then the ability piece is really around conversations and getting a shared definition of what excellence is. When it comes to the context, we can share our context with other folks so it's easier for them to predict us. And remember, it's, it's really about reducing uncertainty. We can share how we're constrained and finding ways that we overlap. I work at the Luxembourg School of Business and I live in Victoria. There's all kinds of formal constraints for me as an employee of a university, as a Canadian living in Canada, but there are also informal things that constrain me. My relationship with my sons means more to me than anything. And so I will act in a way that would not bring shame to them or myself. And I know that word can get back to them. And so I try to be cautious about how I behave. I say some outrageous things at times, but they've come to accept who I am and and how I approach the world and the way I think about the world. And we can also take steps within the context to constrain ourselves. We can make public commitments. We can sign contracts. So there are ways we can reduce uncertainty for each other. And then we come to the vulnerability piece and we try to understand what does the other person think is at stake and how do they value it? And how do we take steps to make them more comfortable? If we think about what's going on right now in a lot of organizations, when we go to work each day or we work from home each day, we have a fairly set level of vulnerability because it's where we get our paychecks. It's where we have our friends. It's part of our sense of self, our self-identity. It's part of our self-esteem. And it's where our dreams are a lot of times. Our visions of next year, this time I'll be doing X at this company. So we have this fairly set level of vulnerability and then things come along and create massive waves of uncertainty. The uncertainty starts to bounce, which means that the level of perceived risk starts to bounce and it makes people uncomfortable. And so what do they do? They try to find ways to reduce their vulnerability. They start to disengage at work. They start to look for other jobs. They start to find ways to not be as connected or not put as much in. And that's not what we want as an organization because who are the first to leave? It's the ones with the best options, right? It's the best people. When I start to frame problems, I'll think about innovation or I'll think about organizational change and development. I'll think about parenting or families. I use the model as a frame to give me a sense of what are the different levers at play right now? And how could we take steps to make things better? I've worked with some great leaders. I was working with a company where the organization did a trust measure and the leader that they had assigned me to got a 13 out of 100. And I got assigned after that. I had conversations with this leader and coached them and showed them the model. And then I had a conversation with their whole team. And I said, okay, so how could this leader show benevolence? What would benevolence look like? And by the way, trust is the willingness to make yourself vulnerable. So now we all have the same definition. When you can't completely predict how somebody else is going to behave, there's elements of 
vulnerability and uncertainty in that definition. We walked systematically through the model and said, how can this person be intentional about these things? Three months later, they did another survey. The leader score went from 13 to 80. In part, next steps are raising awareness. One of the struggles or frustrations for me is that there are people, a lot of people talking about trust, but not really talking about what to do about it or how to build it. That's partly why I'm writing the book. It's partly why I'm having conversations like these with great folks like you. It's to try to raise awareness so that, that people can actually see that there are things we can do about it. There's ways we can fix this stuff. I love it. I love theory that lands in the universe and has potent applications. That's why I asked that question about the third stage. And yeah. I really loved your answer. I have a curveball for you if you're ready. Something that comes to mind. Let me describe this situation. Then I'd like you to respond to it, interpret it through the model or theory, or we can just call it magic and be done with it. Right. But I've got a new guy on one of my teams with a client organization, and uh, he's in a senior position. And I met him for the first time in a group situation. And then we had a chance to work individually on a number of things. I trust this guy immediately. I don't know what it is. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know if it's, does he remind me of someone that I trusted before? Is it just his manner? Is there something otherworldly going on here, but we have developed a good working relationship now. He hasn't let my trust down. So my curveball is this, is intuition real? Is there self-fulfilling prophecy at play here? We've all had this experience. It's very human that we immediately trust someone when we have no good reason to. And often it doesn't come back in our face. It actually seems to work out. Now, maybe I'm not counting my observations and experiences, but play with that a little bit. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Absolutely. And this is what started me getting curious is the fact that people just seem to, now, not everyone likes me. How is that possible? Well, <laughs> I... <laughs> when I, when it took I, me about three seconds to go, oh my God, I want to talk to this guy a right. lot more. <laughs> my batting average is high. I would find that I just tended to have positive interactions with people and I wanted to understand what that was. And part of it is body language and ways that we signal to each other. Part of it is this halo effect of once we've got a positive story about someone, we tend to look for reasons to confirm that, and it strengthens itself. And there, there are things we can do to get other people to like us. For me, I've got the world's greatest guide dog. His name is Drake. And his name is Drake because he can't sing. But he's a lyrical <laughs> genius. But Drake is such a great ambassador. He's actually on my website. He's the director of goodness, the DOG. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so he just, he releases oxytocin in people, makes them smile, makes them happy. And I'm the guy with Drake. So we end up having these sort of positive interactions, positive exchanges that build on themselves. And there's also this sort of initiation of vulnerability. If we make ourselves a bit vulnerable first, it tends to trigger a similar response. And as long as it's a small amount of vulnerability, we don't get hurt too badly by it. And we learn something valuable. Mm -hmm. And so I would suggest that we tend to like people who are like us. And we like people who like us. And so if we can have a positive approach towards somebody else, they will tend to reciprocate or respond in kind. And we also like people who are better looking. Usually that's not helpful to my clients. Like if you could just be a little more attractive, but we can have these things initiate a positive exchange for us mm -hmm. and it'll feed on itself. 
And you're right. Often it's not disappointed. My experience of the world is such a positive one because of Drake. People really do want to be helpful. People really do care about one another. There are exceptions, but a lot of times we're cautious about how we approach each other because we're worried about how it's going to come across. Before I had Drake, I would wander the world and people wouldn't always know, oh, he's blind. They would have different narratives, right? Like that guy's acting weird. Like he almost walked into that pole. And so I would use my cane sometimes and sometimes I wouldn't, but Drake gives everyone a narrative that makes them comfortable. And we're able to approach people in a way that we weren't before. The world was an isolated place for me before Drake because I couldn't read body language and signals. I didn't know when to approach people and when not to. And so I could be very alone in the middle of a crowd. Who hasn't experienced that though, sighted or unsighted? Yeah, but now the crowd comes to us. Drake's a great filter because some people will ignore him and that's fine. They don't want to engage. But other people will say, can I say hi? And I always let Drake say hi because he loves it. That's amazing. Thank you. I, again, the more shivers down the spine. It's beautiful. <laughs> what about the person on the flip side of that, the person alone in the crowd who just can't, I don't know, who just, who people just don't talk to, who, who people just don't immediately trust, who people are maybe a little standoffish with, right. or maybe they're just straight up awkward. I've had I've certainly been awkward in a crowd before. Right. Um, how do you, I'm particularly thinking of the leader, the entrepreneur, maybe, what can they do? I've worked with some tech companies where some of the leaders are really strong introverts. Mm -hmm. You find yourself trying to help because they're gifted people and they can be fantastic leaders, but it's more work for them to do that people interaction stuff mm -hmm. than it is for others. In part, what I try to encourage them to do is Find ways that you're comfortable engaging. Be curious about other people. And just that awareness that we have different stories going on. One of my old advisors, Sim Sitkin, he told this great story. He said he was working in New York and he went out to a conference in Portland. And he got there and he was talking to somebody and the guy said to him, I bet you thought we all wore cowboy hats here in Portland. And he said, and I just looked at him and I thought, in New York, we just don't think about Portland. <laughs> <laughs> so I just yeah. had no idea what you'd be wearing. Like it never occurred to me. <laughs> and so that's us in the middle of a crowd. We're the center of our own universe, but so is everyone else. And feeling like we're being ignored or excluded is likely inaccurate. It's just that we haven't hit other people's radar yet, or they're afraid to reach out and, and connect with us. Finding a way to ask questions, just superficial things like, oh, can you help me find, or, oh, I love this place. And so finding a place where we've got an overlap that can create an area for common ground. And then because we like people who are like us, we can find a way to communicate. That's part of it. With introverted leaders, I talk to them about making sure that everyone knows, right? So don't have people making up their own stories about, oh, you're cold and aloof or arrogant or dismissive. Instead, tell them, I'm a pretty strong introvert. And so crowds are hard for me. It's easier if we have conversations one-on-one -on -one, and I'm going to try to set times up for that. It's something I'm trying to work on. So you include other people in that conversation and share the story so that everyone isn't making up their own. Mm -hmm. Does that help? Yeah, it does. It's a great reminder that we're all the center of our own universe. And we forget that what's going on in our head is not the same thing that's going on in the other person's head. Right. And that the only way to find out is just to ask. Yeah. And to start creating a bit of a shared universe for a moment. I got to tell you, I've experienced such kindness 
from people. I'm constantly amazed. People want to help one another. Most of us find that rewarding. The ability to be helpful, to put a smile on somebody else's face, it's very affirming. So sometimes we give people that opportunity and we try to be helpful in return. We find ways to be helpful and and thoughtful. I have one I'd love to ask you. I've been thinking about since the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned wicked problems, climate change, police, policing, race relations, political issues and on. If you could tackle or attempt to tackle at least part of one of those problems, which problem would you tackle and which players would you try to tackle it with? Do you know what I mean? Not just, oh, I want to solve racism, but I'd want to solve racism and I want to talk to X and Y. Racism would be amazing. And a subset of that is probably the policing issue. I would probably want to to talk to all of the stakeholders because it's not just minorities that are concerned about it. There's fear and vulnerability from other stakeholders as well. And that leads to resistance that probably doesn't need to be there. One of the things I find really helpful about the model is that sometimes it helps us squeeze some of the emotion out of the conversation. I was asked by a group, I was working with some of their leadership development team, and they said, well, will you spend a day with our senior executives? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. The day before, they said to me, oh, by the way, the heads of the unions are going to be there. And I went, oh, that'll be different. And they said, just so you know, we've been in court with each other for the last five years and everybody hates everybody. And and I was like, wow, you're sewing me into a bag of cats and throwing me in the river. <laughs> and, and they said, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. And the day went incredibly well. And partly was because I said, I'm not on anyone's side. Mm-hmm. And here's the model. Now let's talk through the different elements of the model. And afterwards, they all came up to me. And they said, it's the first time we've had hope in five years. And everybody shook hands with everybody. I would like to be able to share the model with the different stakeholders. Go to a place where we had the police and city government, and local community representatives, and minority representatives, all in the same place. And we're able to share the information and then facilitate a conversation around what are your best interests? What would success look like to you? What matters most? Let's talk about what benevolence looks like for each group. What are the vulnerabilities for each group? Because some of the catastrophic events we see take place or because of the vulnerability levels that the police are feeling. Because they're really vulnerable, they can't tolerate much uncertainty, and then they make a bad decision, a horrific decision. Ways that we could understand each other's vulnerabilities, ways that we could understand each other's needs and best interests, ways that we could understand how to make commitments to one another that we can follow through on, how we are interpreting the world. I've seen some remarkable results actually fairly quickly. We could facilitate conversations that I think could have real impact if we could just get the attention of the right groups. Uh, that's amazing. I, I think of a, a powerful model and your bravery. You know, these are situations where not a lot of people, even with the, the best tool in the world, could go into it with an optimist attitude and, and focus on positive change. That courage should be commended for sure. Thank you. That's a rocking amount of positive turbulence. You got it. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Right? That's like, I love it. Thanks so much, folks. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Daryl. It has been such a pleasure. Hey, lovely listeners, stay tuned for this episode's positive turbulence moment coming right up. 
First, a huge thank you to AMI, who have nurtured us in developing this podcast, is the source of so many of our guests, and of course the founder, Stan Griskevich, is also the author of the original book, and dare I say, the Abe Lincoln of Positive Turbulence. AMI is a pioneering nonprofit organization comprised of committed individuals who foster and leverage creativity and innovation in organizations and society. AMI identifies leading-edge innovation, shares experiences, sponsors research, and recognizes innovation and creative processes. Find out more at aminnovation.org. And thank you to Mac Avenue Music Group, our contributing sponsor, for providing our podcast soundtrack, Late Night Sunrise. When I think about where trust might matter most for the folks who are listening to your podcast, I think trust is critical for innovation because people need to feel comfortable taking risks for innovation to actually thrive. Trust is critical for entrepreneurial ventures where a lot of innovation takes place because you need stakeholders to be willing to invest against an uncertain future payoff. And people are welcome to reach out and the website Trust Unlimited has some pieces on the blog that people can read and look at a number of topics that we've tackled that'll give them a sense of the approach that that we take. And I'm always happy to answer questions or if you guys want to do a follow-up at some point, I would be delighted because you're just fun to hang out with. This is awesome. We may have to come meet some of our AMI community at some point. It's a community that is based on trust because we share innovation across industries and sometimes across competitors. Trust is critical and that's fun for sure. If you want to share a positive turbulence moment or otherwise comment on what you're hearing, please drop us a line at podcast at positiveturbulence.com. We welcome your thoughts. Be sure to tune in next episode for our conversation with John Chimino, founder of Creative Leaps and the Renaissance Center, whose concert of ideas experience transforms cultures. John has found a way to use music and art to explore the boundaries of what's possible and to set the mind in curious motion. You can also head over to PositiveTurbulence.com to find out more about us, get a transcript of this episode, get links to find out more about our guests, or Positive Turbulence. Until next time, keep the turbulence positive.